United States submarine base at Key West, Florida. The dispatch that quoted President Truman's press secretary, Charles Cross, as saying that President Truman has no knowledge of any secret project by this government that would give substance to the existence of such objects. Cross also said that both the Air Force and the Navy deny that such objects exist. Hi. Hi. Um, you know, here's the thing. I had a whole thing that I was going to say, right? About your mispronunciation of Gaelic names, or... Oh, no. I'll never... No. Oh, okay. God, no. no are you kidding me? That's what I thought you were going to... That's what I thought you were going to apologize for. No, absolutely not. I, I will go on record unapologetically saying, if you want people to pronounce your names correctly, then spell them spell them right yeah, yeah don't spell them right it's very reading deirdre first of all i'm i'm being totally honest with you just like i was last week i had never seen or heard that name before in my fucking life i'm so serious it it plucked itself out of the universe and presented itself to me for the first time ever in my life in that moment and this is the thing like i irish people are great but the way that they spell names is like how Mormons spell Mackenzie with like 17 U's and Y's and yeah. a silent H. And it's like, what the fuck are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like, what are we fucking doing here? Um, so I will not apologize and I never will apologize. And if your name is Deirdre, sorry. Don't I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I bet they do. Actually, I feel like that's one of those names that's, like, gone out of fashion. Like, the nickname has gone out of fashion. Now you exclusively go by the whole name. Yeah. Um, but anyway, enough about that. <laughs> what I was going to say is that, um, hey, what's up? My name's Noelle. And on Patreon today, I learned that <laughs> there, <laughs> there is a fucking sector of religious people who look at the painting of the last supper and see that woman to the left of jesus with her tits out and go oh that could never be a woman next to jesus at the last supper oh no she would be too busy in the kitchen that is just that is just a man who loves whitney houston and I think that's you are in the minority. That is crazy. Would it blow your mind to say that you uh, would be in the minority if you, with your full chest, said it's a woman in like any artistic circle? That's what's wild, right? Crazy. It's crazy. Like, even unrelated to religion and unrelated to the fact that that's supposed to be a painting of Jesus, that is just um, not true. Like, it is just not true. It's like looking at a painting of a dog and saying it's a cat. Like, especially the way that they painted back then. It is just, they did everything other than put a vagina in between her fucking eyes. But they did, though. We talked about it. They literally put the giant vaginal in between them. Uh, And and I'm Chelsea, and I have Noelle plucked because I have just introduced her to a whole new world going down the Da Vinci Code of... Mary Magdalene being uh, in the painting of the Last Supper and in fact being seated to the right of Jesus and now Noel is fully to the gooped. Left. To well, the left, I was just looking at our it. left, Jesus's right. Stage stage right. <laughs> 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 I um, can't, dude. 
It's got me fucked up, man. <laughs> I can't fucking handle it. Sent me the picture you sent to Ty. Actually, I'll you I, I'll just crop the one that you sent, and then I will see what Oliver says when I yeah. ask him if it is so, a... <laughs> so sorry we're doing the thing that everyone hates, where we like don't do the episode. But this is important. And and I hate educator. it more than any of you. I hate it more yeah. than any of you. But I, that's why I frankly can't listen. Um, but <laughs> No, it's because I hate myself. But anyway, I took... I zoomed in and cropped clearly Mary Magdalene out of the Last Supper, and then I removed everyone around her and I put her on a pink background. <laughs> and I said, "Is this a painting of a woman? Yes or no?" And he goes, "Painting?" Question mark. Okay, first of all, bad start. And I go, "Yeah, is that a woman in that picture?" Saying in that picture helped him. He goes, "Yeah, of course. There's titty crack, which is what I said." And I said, "Right." Like, that's clearly a woman, cleavage, femme face, femme hair. And then I said, what if I told you? And he goes, is that Joseph Smith? <laughs> and then I said, it's Mary Magdalene, a woman who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, clearly an equal or whatever. But because Christianity and Catholicism did not want women to see themselves as equal, they remove her as Mary Magdalene and make her the whore friend of Jesus. And I've even gone on to say that picture of the Last Supper that she's in clearly depicted right next to Jesus is not her, and it's just some other fucking guy who just so happened to be there. And then he responds in the most tie way possible. He goes, hey, well, it's, so you're saying it's a woman? And um, I don't think I can read all of that. <laughs> um, I want to preface this with this. I sent this in a private text message with Oliver, and I said, "Is this a man or a woman?" And he said, "That's a simple whoer." And I said, "PC terms, though." And he said, "It looks like Mary Mags." Well, see, he's he's. But Oliver is obsessed with Da Vinci Code. Oh, that Uh, doesn't count. Obsessed. So he kind of already had like a little preface there. Yeah. But you know what? What's happening right now to you and I, and now Ty? is shared psychosis because this is a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah. So and what a good segue. What a perfect, I say. Yeah. What a perfect <laughs> seg- segue. How there was dead air there. Uh, me waiting. For you to say <laughs> you were texting. Sentence. Well, you were texting. I didn't know what was going on. How dare you text in my face? Well, yeah, I had to tell him that we would be in the minority for believing that was oh, a woman. So anyway, hundred percent conspiracy. That is fucking crazy. Anyway, so, anyway, what we are talking about tonight is fully a and the slippery slope of shared sanity. So, fully a translates from French as the duo's madness, signifying a peculiar psychological phenomenon where delusional beliefs and occasionally hallucinations jump from one person to the other. If the delusion extends beyond just two people, it can be termed folie à trois, for three, or fale a quatre, for four, and so on. When it engulfs the whole family, it is referred to as folie et familia, and when it encompasses several individuals, it is folie a plusieurs. Also, why is four that? Because like, un, deux, trois, quatre, quatre, that's four. Well, that's how the French say four. It's quatre. I I looked up the pronunciations on YouTube, and then I wrote them out phonetically. It sounds more Spanish. It, you know what? Well, this cuatro is what, would be Spanish, right? But yeah. I don't know, man. I'm not. I'm not a fan of French pronunciations. Hopefully, that's the last of it. Nope, we got a few more French names, but then we're out of the woods. Can't fucking wait. 
So rooted in 19th century French psychiatry, this phenomenon was first outlined by Charles Lasegue and Jules Favre, leading some to recognize it as the Lasegue Favre syndrome. Lasegue what? <laughs> Lasegue? What you call me? Um, the fuck though, did you say? <laughs> uh, though older psychological terminologies labeled this condition as shared psychotic disorder, as per the DSM-4, or induced delusional disorder in the ICD-10 terms, many researchers still prefer to use the classic term fully ado. And I'm going to say do instead of doa because I earned that right as an American and I went to public school. Yeah, what's the joke? Um, what's the joke? If you know three languages, what are you called? European. No, what is it called when you know three languages? Educated. Well, no. Bilingual. Multilingual. No, bilingual is two. God damn it. Multilingual. The, the, I said the, multilingual after bilingual. Trilingual. Trilingual. Oh. God, the public school is failing us again. It's making the joke even more rich, though, because it explains <laughs> itself. So trilingual. Here you go, Chelsea. You're going to get this. What do you okay. call someone who knows two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who knows one language? American. Yeah. That's ah! <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the amount, the the pain, the physical pain that manifested behind my eyeballs while I was trying to fucking figure out what you needed me to say was what? so viscerally. Well, if they don't teach us a second language, why would they expect us to know what the term is for knowing three? <laughs> right? We yeah. don't even know one, clearly. Sir, I am barely able to read right now. This entire document is written out phonetically and I'm doing my best. <laughs> Every Jeez. time we do this, it's mostly phonetical. It would totally look like, like if, if you put our phonetic spellings and translations like out onto a document in World War II, they would get the code crackers to come because they would yeah. think they were intercepting a fucking yeah. nuclear bomb. They would bring in people much smarter and they'd be like, I don't I don't know what this caveman speak is. And then Noel and I would be like hooting in the corner, like oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Dumb. Yeah, that's exactly it. So like anyway. we would be scared of fire. Like our <laughs> rudimentary spelling skills is like the equivalent of being afraid of fire. We're like fucking Sheer Khan over here, just doing our best. If you clap oh, too loud, man. I will jump. So <laughs> yeah, uh, the bright headlights of a vehicle will freeze me immediately. <laughs> so the the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM five doesn't list it as a distinct uh, condition anymore. Instead, it gets categorized under a delusional disorder or as part of like the other specified schizophrenia spectrum or other psychotic disorders. Um, but for the sake of this episode, folia du is what we are calling it, and that is what we will refer to it as such from here on out. So the nature of this shared psychosis can be broken down into two distinct types. There's fully impose. And in this case, a dominant individual, also known as the primary, who is experiencing a delusion enforces this belief upon their secondary. The secondary may not have developed this delusion independently, but interestingly enough, if they are separated and treated, the secondary's delusions usually dissipate without the need of medication. So essentially, so, they remove the primary and it goes away. So a <laughs> an example of this would be like, you trying to convince me that you're like well mentally and medically 
And then I'm just like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then like the moment yeah. you are removed out of the situation, I go, she needs help. Yeah, mm. absolutely. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> and then there's fully simultané. Fuck, dude. That French. went, that up on me. did not simultané. go French for you. Simultané. <laughs> Here, two individuals, either both predisposed to psychosis or undergoing it independently, influence each other to the point their delusions mirror one another. It's like a dark dance of the minds where both feed and grow off each other's hallucinations. So you and I trying to convince each other that Mary Magdalene is in the Last Supper painting. I was going to say you and I anytime these mics yeah. are on. <laughs> Collective delusions. Me bit bopping around. Why are all these lights like streaming? How come everything's blurry right now? Noel has demon eyes. If anyone has listened to an, us speak and been like, oh my God, they're really on fire right now. They're really making sense. You have been a part of <laughs> collective <laughs> you, delusion. Yeah. yeah, frankly, you've enabled our behavior and it's got to stop. And you're participating. And so we are all sharing a psychosis. A fully applicious. It's okay. We can make fun of the French. <laughs> yeah, what are they going to do? They're not real. <laughs> <laughs> so such shared delusions are indeed enigmatic in psychiatry. The current mental health guidelines argue that if a personal or a particular belief is widely accepted within a person's cultural circle, then it shouldn't be labeled as a delusion. So this raises questions about the boundary between shared psychosis and then widely accepted cultural beliefs, where many individuals believe in something obviously untrue based on word of mouth. Psychiatrists don't see it as clinical delusions, but more of like a mass hysteria. So religion. Um, or even like vaccinations for COVID. Uh, MAGA, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Um, but I still think psychologists are diagnosing that as delusional. Or they should. A, another good example would be like those tribes that have never had any influence from outside cultures. So when they see an airplane come by, they're like, oh my God, it's the gods sending a sign. That's not necessarily delusional. It's just a cultural belief. Um, so mm. it's it's essentially like a reverence for culture, and it's a way to be respectful of what people believe. Like South America, there's like lots of shamanism that goes on, um, lots of like tribal beliefs. So instead of saying like that's delusional psychosis, it's protected within their culture. So it's essentially just a way to be respectful of other people's beliefs. But we don't have to respect anybody here, especially oh, especially like religion thank uh, god so, you know what yeah. i mean thank god literally and figuratively and in the sense that it's a delusion that everyone it's, shares it's almost exactly what we do when we say like thunderbirds and skinwalkers are not cryptids because they are protected by a certain level by culture. culture yeah yeah so um delusions on the other hand are steadfast beliefs that persist even when confronted to evidence to the contrary so let's break down a couple of those there's the bizarre delusion, which are outlandish beliefs that are clearly inconsistent with reality and not accepted by others, even in the same cultural context. So it would be like somebody believing that their organs were swapped out overnight without leaving any scars or that would wake them up. Um, so such a scenario would be absolutely impossible, given our understanding of biology and medicine. Oh, my God. It's like that. Did you see me share it yesterday? And everyone listening, did you sh see me share it on October 25th? Um, it was a literal question from a hiring quiz that someone was taking. And it was like, 
Rhonda works at the bank. Rhonda has been approached by a man brandishing a gun, saying that the CIA has put tracking devices in his teeth. What do you do? And then the answer that they clicked, which unfortunately, and I think incorrectly was the wrong answer, was like, let them know that the CIA the CIA is on their way to remove the the implementation devices from their fillings. And I was like, oh, is that delusion or is that culture? If they are a targeted individual, then it is not delusion. The quiz did not give enough information. I would have to know more. The context is not there. And frankly, we can't answer because we don't have it. And so that's yeah. what I say to you. So that that's it info. in this situation, Rhonda at the bank, she would go, Are you a are you a targeted person? Has the FBI been to your door? Because if yes, culture. But if no, delusion. Yeah, get the fuck out of here, Rhonda. Either mm-hmm. way, you need to put tinfoil on your head and make it a you problem. Yeah, and problem. I mean, who, how do we know that the CIA isn't putting tracking devices in our fillings? Maybe that's why they cost $500 with insurance. That's the because, only actual thing that makes sense. Right? Because if, if it's uh, a government doing, guess what the government's not going to do? Pay for it all themselves. Dude, this, okay, so I actually didn't read ahead, but this is tying into what you said, and now I have delusion, because the next one is non-bizarre delusions, which are more relatable beliefs, often tied to personality disorders. These are accepted as potential realities by peers, even if improbable. For instance, if someone were convinced the FBI is tailing them, a scenario which, while unlikely, is not beyond the realms of possibility. So, Rhonda is non-bizarre. And someone needs to tell her that to her face. Yeah, someone needs to tell her that she did the right thing. (laughs) (laughs) The best thing to do is just speak out. Raise your hand. Now's the time. Alert an adult. Hey, I think the CIA is on their way. And, you know, that's culture. We were talking about that CIA episode once, and then that was when our internet kept kicking out. Was it bad weather? Or was it the government trying to shut down the truth? Probably both because the government controls the weather, bitch. Wake up! <laughs> that was a trick question and you fucking passed. <laughs> so, mood congruent delusions are directly linked to a person's emotional state, like during manic or depressive episodes. So, someone might be sure that they'll win the lottery on a particular day, not based on evidence, but sheer conviction. So, mm-hmm. But on the flip side, during a depressive state, they might believe a loved one is bound to face like a tragic accident without any logical reason. You girl, that's your brain, mama. That is your brain. Uh-huh. I th- sometimes I think if I want something hard enough that like I'll I'm like I'm not safe because I drive like a grandma and I look left and right like 50 times before I make a turn. I'm safe mm-hmm. because my mood determined it for me. Let me have an honest conversation with everyone. Okay? Do you remember the book, The Secret? Yes. Well, I remember I never read it. Okay. Spoiler alert. It's about about manifesting. Yeah. And that came out in what? 2004, 2005, Mm -hmm. right? And I remember I read The Secret because, you know, if there's one thing about me, it's collective delusion. And on my way home after reading it, and like, trying to do the secret 
aka manifesting like money mm-hmm. and i'm not even fucking with you bro <laughs> at 20 as i'm driving from my school like high school back home at 20 pop on my windshield bruh and i pulled it's over and grabbed it true. and i was like oh my god it's real girl and anyway so that was like the secret and then it got like rebranded to like manifestation and now even like the most well-regarded world-renowned like um self-care self-help life coaches will tell you to do vision boards for manifestation purposes mm-hmm. and peace and love because i'm fucking crazy i'm crazy so i do it too that is shared delusion yeah, I do. That it is fully a do. I it 100 is. I do it with sports where I visualize like I'm going to get through that wall and I'm going to score a point. Mm-hmm. I do it all the time. Yeah, they it's say visualize good. your dreams. Yeah. They, even if they don't use the words like manifestation, they still say like even the best, like fucking the you know history's greatest coaches in sports will be like you have to vision it first. So, this isn't fair. Then why is it a mood congruent delusion and not just manifestation? Maybe it's because it's during manic or depressive episodes. Is that not what we're all doing constantly? Is that not the ebb and flow of life? Yeah. I'm either fucking manic. I'm either like up or I'm down. Or I'm down. Exactly. Exactly. The rarities are the in-betweens moments. Mere moments. Mood stability is for men. White men. Who make above average income. Not even. Not even. Because that is is even a false (laughs) hope. Mood stability is a word that people say just like saying black it has no fucking meaning it just <laughs> yeah. is it mood just stability is, is my sick ass welcome mat in front of my house which is always there that is mood stability yep yeah well now we have <laughs> mood neutral which are beliefs that remain consistent regardless of a person's emotional state so an example would be someone firmly believing that they have actually swapped bodies with their neighbor Regardless of if they're in a freaky regardless Friday, regardless of them being in a bed, yeah, freaky Friday, freaky Friday. Did you piss in the fountain? The <laughs> Are fuck? you Jamie Lee Curtis? No. Didn't they piss? Who pissed in the fountain? <laughs> what? What yeah. body swap? What body swap movie did they piss in the fountain? Let me Google that. There's one. It's definitely not Freaky Friday, but it's one of them. There isn't because Jamie yes, Lee Curtis is, could bitch. never. And it's the hot chick, you fucking whore. What's yeah, the hot chick? The hot chick is like, <laughs> I was going to say, hot chick isn't Freaky Friday, but it is. Yeah, they it is. Yeah, they is, girl. And it arguably is. the better one. So right. well, what's one that day, about? <laughs> one day we will share the delusion that you want to be nice to me. <laughs> one day we'll <laughs> share the me. delusion that you will watch the hot chick <laughs> and understand it's my me. incoherent thoughts. <laughs> Jessica. Jessica. <laughs> so <laughs> shared delusional disorders, like other mental conditions, can affect various facets of an individual's life. Chronic stress from such disorders can lead to major health issues, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and more. The risk rises with the intensity of the disorder, especially if left untreated. Furthermore, individuals with delusional disorders have a higher likelihood of experiencing other mental health issues like depression and anxiety. No shit. If you think that the fucking... Yeah, if you think the CIA is after you every second of the day, guess what? 
You're not sleeping. You're not eating. You're not feeling good, dog. Yeah, of course. Anxiety is the least, the least of your worries. Um, But interestingly, about 55% of patients with shared delusional disorder seem to exhibit a shared genetic predisposition. Man, born wrong from the jump. I mean, you know, born in shit, they say. One can relate. (laughs) So the disorder's influence extends beyond the individual's mental health. So often those with the, those diagnosed face social exclusion, which compounds the challenges that they face day to day. And for those with shared delusional disorder, this isolation is a double-edged sword. Not only is it a consequence of the disorder, but it also exacerbates it. Mm-hmm. So when re-exposed to isolating environments, there's a higher risk of those shared delusions returning. And like one example that I saw was two brothers were hoarding and they shared this delusion about the hoarding, but then hoarding was then self-isolated to the point where like they both passed away in the home and then nobody knew about it because you don't bring people over because you're hoarding, but they started hoarding yeah. because they needed the, the delusion that they needed to protect themselves from the outside world. I also see this in the sense of someone who has delusion and um, self-isolating contributes to the delusion. Like if they think that they are being held captive, like Truman show style, and they they're isolating because they're freaked out by everyone, but then being away from everyone makes everyone seem like your delusions are true and it's just a never-ending cycle of that yeah <laughs> chelsea you're muted you're muted <laughs> how long have i been muted for i was looking around thinking i pressed <laughs> a button and it was you muting yourself the whole time Oh, man. So the root causes, what I was saying, is the root causes of shared delusional disorder remain a mystery, but most likelihood is that stress and social isolation are two primary suspects. Um, And when individuals are isolated together, they often develop an emotional dependency on on one another. And this closeness allows a dominant figure or inducer to sway the perceptions and beliefs of others around them. And without external perspectives... Those within the isolated group lack the necessary checks and balances to challenge their emerging delusional beliefs. And that's why one of the key treatment methods is to distance the affected individual from the influence of the inducer. And another crucial element is stress. Commonly recognized as a catalyst for many mental health issues, stress plays a pivotal role in the onset or escalation of SDD, social uh, shared delusional disorder. And although many who develop STD have a genetic predisposition to mental illness, genetics alone isn't the trigger. Stress acts as a spark to this volatile mix. And when under stress, the body releases cortisol, a stress hormone. And the stress or the surge of cortisol can spike dopamine levels in the brain, a change often associated with the emergence of mental health disorders, including shared delusions. And it is worth noting that while there isn't a single universally accepted cause for shared psychosis, various factors influence its manifestation. And these factors can be based on cultural context, community beliefs, individual life situations, environmental shifts, and personal relationships. And to diagnose SDD, a comprehensive evaluation of the patient's experiences, beliefs, and environment is essential. And this involves a clinical interview to understand their delusions, differentiating between genuinely shared beliefs and individual ones, 
and ruling out medical conditions or substances that might mimic delusional symptoms. Mm, that that was going to be my next question is like, do they still categorize it as like shared delusion? If it's medically induced, like if you have, you know, done meth for three days and haven't slept and now you're like hallucinating and think that people are after you, like, do they still treat it like shared delusion or do they treat it as like a detox? Do you know? It, that's super interesting because in the middle of researching this, there were several drugs that came up that caused sorts of delusions. And one of the big ones was like a British drug that like MI5 used and it would just make people like very lethargic. But if we want to look closer to home, if you look at LSD mm -hmm. and people start to kind of have the same visions on any kind of hallucinogenic drug, it would not fall into this because it would be medically induced, so to speak. Mm. Okay. So. Because it's the um, whole like uh, when people take ayahuasca, they all have like that same experience. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Or if you and I were to go do shrooms together and we're like, the trees are dancing. It's not a shared delusion. It's like a medically induced trip where you and I are kind of playing off of each other's vibes. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but it's also important for diagnosis to really assess the dynamics and relationship between the individuals sharing the delusion, because you have to consider that cultural backgrounds could influence beliefs and you have to gather additional insights from anyone close to the patient. So once diagnosed, the, fo the focus shifts from appropriate treatments into ongoing monitoring. And we aren't really going to dive too far into the treatment for these cases because then we have to go into the weeds of hardcore therapy for these people. And it also involves the afflicted's closest family members and social circles. So instead, we're just going to dive right into the folie adieu and hope that we do not fly too close to the sun ourselves. Good luck, you know. Good fucking and luck. It only took me 16 hours to maybe buy into the idea of flat earth. So let's see what this does to Yeah, me. never fucking forget. Never again. So born under the cold Swedish skies on November 3rd, 1967, the Ericsson twins, Sabina and Ursula, shared not just identical genes, but also a seemingly ordinary childhood in the picturesque town of Sundvarmland. Their siblings, Mona and Bjorn, might recall the twins as pretty spirited, but certainly not predisposed to any dark tendencies or even brushes with the law. Fast forward to the dawn of the new millennium, and the sisters have carved out pretty desperate lives. Ursula embraced the American dreams while Sabina settled amidst the rolling green hills of Mallow County, Cork, Ireland, weaving her own tale with her husband and two children. However, the narrative took a mysterious twist in May 2008. On a seemingly unremarkable Friday, the 16th to be exact, Ursula decided to pay Sabina a visit. But what began as a familial reunion soon became an enigmatic escape. Because by dawn the next day, the twins found themselves on the cobbled streets of Liverpool, England. Their first port of call? The St. Anne Street Police Station. And their concern seemed earnest, focused on the safety of Sabina's children. But as the Liverpool Constabulary, fuck, cops, <laughs> that's a big word, man. I think Here's you said it right. Did I? I hope so. Liverpool not, cops. Yeah, the Liverpool fuzz. Piece together the jigsaw, a tiff between Sabina and her partner, the prior evening emerged. But yet the intrigue didn't end there. By midday, the inseparable duo were London bound, hopping on a National Express coach with the city's historic sites awaiting them. 
and the motive behind the sudden jaunt? Well, that's a riddle wrapped in the enigma of these two intertwined souls. Because the tale of the Erickson twins grew even more perplexing at Keeley Services, a popular motorway pit stop. And while an official statement mentioned that the twins alighted due to ill feelings, the driver narrated a slightly different account. According to him, it wasn't a routine halt, but around 1 p.m. he felt compelled to stop, given the twins' unpredictable behavior. Their unyielding grip on their bags and reluctance to have them inspected stirred suspicions. And this odd behavior prompted the service station's manager to notify the police, who upon arrival engaged in a brief interaction with the twins. But despite the peculiar circumstances, the officers deemed the sisters to be non-threatening and moved on, leaving behind them a wake of unanswered questions. And that is white privilege. White privilege. <laughs> Only two um, white twins would be able to <laughs> fucking have suspicious bags yeah, gripping acting, them, yeah. being like, you can't fucking look at here. You can't fucking look at here. And then they're like, let them on their way. Especially since they were hanging out at the cop station, like right before this happened. Yeah. But in a mysterious and harrowing event captured on CCTV, the Erickson twins, after leaving the services, made a rash attempt to cross the bustling M16 motorway on foot. This would be like running across I-15. M6, but it's like... Yeah. Did I say M15? You said M16. It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, Who's going to come for me? No the one. The British? Get in line behind yeah. the French. Yeah, get... Poppies. Good luck. So- How many wars <laughs> have you won? <laughs> this recklessness led to minor injuries and traffic disruption, with Sabina even getting hit by a car. And although their elder brother hinted in a Swedish publication that they might have been escaping some pursuers, there's n- literally no concrete evidence to back this up. And the scene quickly escalated when, unexpectedly, Ursula darted into the path of a speeding lorry, with Sabina following suit. Girl, what the struck- fuck is that? It's like a big ass truck thing. A lorry? It's like a semi. Yeah. It's like a British semi truck. So they get a new name when they're British? Yeah. The fuck? She darted into the path of a semi truck. (laughs) Thank you. And Sabina followed. Thank you. We're in fucking America, bitch. (laughs) We fucking bleed red, white, blue, bitch. They're called Freedom Fries. (laughs) And she, so Sabina ran after her and was struck by another car. But both sisters survived. Um, And however, the aftermath was equally baffling because Ursula, despite her severe injuries, resisted medical aid aggressively spitting and screaming. Because here's the interesting thing about this. This all happened when the British version of fucking cops showed up. You can watch them get hit by multiple cars on fucking YouTube, bruv. Whoa. And Ursula, despite, you know, spitting and screaming was still, like, fucking scuffling with the police. And Sabina, although initially unconscious, popped back up like the fucking Crypt Keeper, like the fucking Undertaker, and soon began to act erratically, shouting about organ theft and assaulted a police officer. And then then they made her the mayor of the town. (laughs) (laughs) She made another dash onto the motorway, leading to her being sedated and restrained. And speculations regarding a possible suicide pack or drug influence due to their eerily synchronized erratic behavior kind of popped up, but that actually wasn't the case. Following the chaos, Ursula was airlifted to a hospital, while Sabina's calm demeanor post the event led to her brief hospitalization, but she was actually fucking released. 
Of course. And in a seemingly calm state during her police custody, she made a pretty cryptic comment referencing multiple accidents. And although she pled guilty to her actions on the motorway and assaulting a police officer, she was released from court with only a day's sentence, which was deemed already served. So like, just go so, on your merry way. So fucking British coded of them. Yeah. And the sequence of events left many unanswered questions regarding the sisters' mysterious actions on that fateful day. And it doesn't end there. Because after leaving court, Sabina Erickson found herself walk, wandering the streets of Stoke-on-Trent. She was carrying her belongings in a plastic bag provided to her by the police and was wearing her sister's green top and was acting pretty out of place. But by evening Oh, time, after getting hit by multiple cars, you don't <laughs> yeah, fucking by getting say. getting hit by a semi. By getting <laughs> hit by a semi and going to court and being released all in the same day. Oh, and you're act- she was a little off. Oh, she was a little off. She was a little strange. Yeah, no fucking. Uh, but by, I guess by British standards, she was fine. That's true. So by evening time, she met two locals. Glenn Holished and Peter Malloy. Holished, a former RAF airman and qualified paramedic, offered Sabina shelter for the night after noticing her distressed state. Back at Holished's house, her behavior remained a little erratic. She was jittery, frequently peeking out the window, and at one point bizarrely snatched cigarettes from the men's mouths, fearing that they might be poisoned. By the next day, in an unexpected and horrifying turn, Holishen was fatally stabbed, allegedly by Sabina. We all know it was by Sabina. Still allegedly to this day? Allegedly by Sabina. His heart-wrenching last words were a plea for someone to take care of his dog. Oh my god. True hero. And Sabina, after this, her actions were just as bewildering. She fled the scene hit herself with a hammer in a self-destructive manner. And when a concerned passerby tried to intervene, she attacked him with say, a roof tile she had in her pocket. I just want to say thank you for clarifying that it was in a self-destructive manner. <laughs> yeah. Not just and, not, and not hitting herself with a hammer in a um, self-soothing manner. You're more caught on the hammer than the fact that she attacked someone with a roof tile she had in her pocket. Where else do you put him? On the roof, <laughs> one might say. Oh, but, if you're looking but, to hit someone with a blunt <laughs> object, a rock is too obvious and the hammer's for you. So what do you got left, bitch? A fucking roof tile. Roof tile, you're right. You're right. I shouldn't even have, I shouldn't even have argued. Come on. You know what I mean? It's obvious. <laughs> so the climax of this chilling saga came to a head when Sabina jumped from a high bridge and suffered pretty severe injuries. She was, of course, hospitalized leaving a trail of unanswered questions and heartache in her wake. And in June 2008, while recuperating at the University Hospital of North Staffordshire, Sabina Erickson was arrested, and by September she was charged with murder. Her twin sister, Ursula, returned to Sweden and later moved to the United States without further incidents. Sabina's trial, initially set for February 2009, faced extensive delays due to complications in retrieving her Swedish medical records. But finally, in September 2009, Sabina pled guilty to manslaughter under diminished responsibility after having used a kitchen knife to stab her victim multiple times. Throughout the legal proceedings, Sabina remained largely silent, offering no explanation for her actions and frequently responding with no comment to police inquiries. The video footage from the M6 motorway incident was notably absent from the evidence presented in court. 
both the prosecution and defense agreed that at the time of the killing, Sabina was mentally unstable, but had regained her sanity by the time trial came around. Various theories were presented about her mental state. She might have been influenced by her twin in a case of the shared psychosis or folia du, or she might have experienced a rare psychiatric disorder causing her to hear indistinguishable voices, or she could have had an acute delusional disorder. Ultimately, the court accepted her plea, and Justice Saunders deduced that Sabina's culpability at the incident was relatively low. After her sentencing, Sabina Erickson was placed in Bronzefield Women's Prison for a term of five years. During her incarceration, she embraced Christianity, like they always do. Classic. And considering the time she had already spent in her custody prior to her sentencing, she became eligible for release as early as 2011. That would not have happened in the good old U.S. of A. Yeah, I was actually going to say, based off of a documentary that I recently watched called The Devil on Trial, and no other research whatsoever, so if it's incorrect, that's your fault for believing me, um, (laughs) they talk about how they were going to attempt to try the first case in the U.S. um, of insanity due to demonic possession, and they were using three cases from the U.K., where that passed and all three people were um like let chart like i don't know what you'd say charged innocent decreed innocent by reasons diminished of capacity yeah, diminished yeah. capacity by reasons of demonic possession and um that's what this reminds me of it does and just like another delusional thing in fully i do they brought in ed and lorraine warren on that case they did they fucking did not fans, not friends of the podcast. No, enemies of the podcast, enemies, some would say. Enemies. In another case, we have the Gibbons twins. June and Jennifer Gibbons, born on the 11th of April, 1963, were identical twins hailing from Wales. Earning the moniker the Silent Twins, they were unique in their decision to only communicate with each other, shutting out the world around them. Did they also wear little blue dresses and... <laughs> yeah, and they showed up in, like, Colorado hotels. <laughs> um, both sisters were talented writers and produced numerous works of fiction. Their unusual behavior and complexity surrounding their relationship led to their confinement in Broadmoor Hospital, where they remained for over a decade. And that is just so typical. You can be an amazing writer, but it's just a little off, and they're like, send them away. Yeah, I know. They're like, get them out of here. Meanwhile, uh, they were- now... They are non-white, so... Oh, well, that's why. (laughs) Yeah, they actually were from the Caribbean, and the Gibbons family migrated to the UK, was kind of part of the broader Windrush generational movement, where many people from the Caribbean sought better lives in the UK. Caribbean or Caribbean? Caribbean. Unless I'm talking about Pirates of the Caribbean. I was going to say. I was raised right. You know, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I... I am a scholar in all things Caribbean versus Caribbean. And Gloria, (laughs) thank you for keeping me in check. Gloria, their mother, was primarily engaged in domestic duties, while their father, Aubrey, worked as a technician in the Royal Air Force. And their family included three other siblings, Greta, David, and Rosie. And their early life was marked by the significant transitions as the family moved from Barbados to Yemen due to Aubrey's deployment, and subsequently to England, and finally Haver. Haverford West, Wales, in 1974. <laughs> Growing up in Wales, the twins, along with their siblings, were the sole also, black children pause, in the vicinity. Just want to say, 
great job editing that live and not trying Thanks. to pronounce the name again and just saying Wales. Also, to the yeah, people of show Wales. Show business, baby. Grow up. You know what I mean? Grow <laughs> up. What the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you, your words have too many consonants and the syllables in them, and I'm fucking sick of it. Haverford West? Grow up. Call it Boston. Yeah. Move call yeah. it Boston. Move on. You know? Move on. Yeah. Anyway, go on. This distinction led to them facing considerable ostracization in school. That's an, That must be a Welsh word. Uh, the bullying became <laughs> so severe that the school's administration decided to let them leave earlier each day to protect them. And as a result of this isolation, the twins' already unique language evolved into something that was almost entirely unintelligible to those around them. The, synchrony, the synchronicity in their actions, often mirroring each other's movements and gestures, are examples Examples of cryptophagia, a private language or system of communication that's shared by twins. Ah, it's so cool and so creepy at the same time. Yeah. Imagine being able to do that. Like, there's, like, a shared communication with women. Like, this look is different than this look. Mm-hmm. But, man, it'd be cool to be able to, like, have that. The 17 different ways you raise your eyebrows, uh -huh. letting people know what's up. Um. <laughs> but it was nice. They actually did include their younger sister, Rosie. Like she could kind of understand some of this like twin speak, but everyone else not included on the inner circle. So despite the evident challenges that the Finns faced, they still continued their schooling. However, their refusal to read or write coupled with their reclusive behavior drew a lot of attention. In 1974, during a vaccination drive at their school, a medic noticed their peculiar behavior. And this observation led to the involvement of a child psychologist. I just want to say, thank God it was just a child psychologist and not a fucking exorcist. Because the way that I've seen <laughs> these know. stories go down, yeah. it gets real nasty. Yeah, Definitely no exorcisms in this story. Thank God. For once. Well, I know. Multiple therapists and specialists tried to intervene and encourage the twins to communicate with the broader world. But their attempts were all in vain. Also, fuck them for that. Are you kidding me? Are they fucking kidding me? If I came up with a secret language that only me and my twin sister knew, and you're going to tell me, hey, knock that off. Hey, you know that really cool, unique thing that you do that's very specific to you and is probably a super cool bonding experience and totally fucking awesome to use when you're getting a pedicure and you know that they're talking shit about your feet, but you don't mm -hmm. want to say it out loud. And you're going to tell us yeah. to stop? Also, here's another one. They want to communicate. They want the twins to communicate with the broader world, but they're not doing anything about the bullying that they faced so bad that they had to leave school early every day. Yeah, ma'am. Make it make sense. It doesn't, and that's the problem. So, in a drastic effort to disrupt their insular world, they were sent to separate boarding schools. But this intervention backfired as the separation led the twins to become more catatonic and even more withdrawn. And this reaction further underscored the depth and intensity of their bond, suggesting that their relationship was their primary, if not sole, emotional and social support. So upon reuniting after their traumatic separation in different boarding schools, the twins retreated even further far into their own world, spending their days in the sanctuary of their bedroom. Their passion for storytelling took on a physical form with dolls, using them to enact intricate plays and narratives. These plays, often in the style of soap operas, provided them with an outlet to process their feelings and were sometimes recorded and gifted to their sister, Rosie, revealing their innate talent for storytelling. This sounds so fucking cool. This it sounds, is a problem? Yeah. <clears throat> it sounds like 
so fucking sad that they put all the onus on these two girls who are suffering like a massive upheaval in their childhood and even more unfairness and racism, but they still like have this fantastical world that they involve their younger sister in. And like, that's the thing too. It's like this, this sense of wonder, like they, it's so sad that no one around them wanted to change the environmental circumstances that were causing them to recluse. Exactly. And yet they were still like blossoming in this like creative and artistic space. Like that's yeah. How fucking cool of them. It's like they were mad at the smoke when they should have been putting out the fire the whole time. Mm -hmm. So Christmas of 1979 marked a significant turning point in their lives. Receiving diaries as gifts, the twins started to pen down their thoughts, dreams, and stories. And their interest in writing grew, prompting them to enroll in a mail-order course for creative writing. Prop to the parents on that one. Yeah, that's way cool. And their writings, predominantly set in the United States, highlighted their fascination with foreign locales, possibly indicating a longing for escape or a deeper understanding of global cultures. And their stories explored the darker corners of the human psyche and the intersection of love, morality, and the consequences of one's actions. June's The Pepsi-Cola Addict provides a glimpse into the tumultuous world of its protagonist, exploring themes of seduction, power dynamics, and the challenges of navigating a world that often seems hostile. The twins even use their limited financial resources to self-publish June's novel, demonstrating their commitment and belief in their craft. And Jennifer's writings were equally captivating. This one, I'm not sure what this word is. So the pugilist? That's what I thought, too. Pugilist? Probably pugilist. (laughs) I don't even know that's a word. Delves deep into the sacrifices a parent is willing to make for their child, exploring the moral boundaries one might cross to ensure their loved one's survival. Discomania tapped into the frenzy of the disco era, twisting it into a tale of chaos and the potent effect of mass hysteria. I love that. And each story was a testament to Jennifer's ability to capture the human experience in all of its shades. And for a long time, the twins' literary contributions were largely unnoticed. Their writings remained a secret world shared only between the two of them. However, with the republishing of The Pepsi-Cola Addict in 2022 and 2023, the twins' literary endeavors were slowly gaining the recognition that they deserve. And their unique perspective, shaped by their isolation and bond, added a fresh voice to the literary world. While they may be considered outsider writers, their stories still hold universal themes and emotions that resonate with many. Don't let like the fucking publishers tell you what you are or you're not. Yeah, I want to read these now. But for all the good, there was definitely a descent of the Gibbons twins into criminal activities, which marked a tumultuous period in their already unconventional lives. By the early 1980s, the twins had turned to drug and alcohol use, which only exacerbated their troubles. Their antisocial activities, ranging from vandalism and from theft to arson, eventually caught up with them, and they were committed to Broadmoor Hospital in 1981. Broadmoor is one of the UK's most high-security psychiatric hospitals, which houses some of the country's most dangerous and mentally disturbed criminals. It's weird that they put people of vandalism in there. That seems like Yeah. Sounds like actually very on-brand for psychiatric hospitals. Right? No wonder that's where we got it from. Um, us being the United States. Mm -hmm. Their admission to Broadmoor and subsequent stay is emblematic of the challenges in treating individuals with unique psychological profiles like the Gibbons twins. Hold on, I have to burp. Oh my God. That was a good one. 
Uh, the fact that they were sentenced under the Mental Health Act of 1983 to indefinite detention speaks volumes about how their behavior and selective mutism were perceived by the justice and medical systems. One girl literally fucking killed a guy and they released her like that day. Yeah, I was going to say, do we not remember what happened mere moments ago? <laughs> oh my god, so June's reflection on their prolonged confinement is pretty heartbreaking. She juxtaposed their predicament against what like juvenile delinquents typically face, highlighting a perceived injustice. And her desperate plea to the queen showcased the depths of their despair and feeling of entrapment. She was trying to reach out to queen fucking cunt Elizabeth to get her out. Yeah. She should have reached out to Diana. She should have. Even though I think she had already. Nope. 1983 girl. She was bit bopping around girl. You know, the treatment that they received them. it <laughs> the treatment that they received at Broadmoor further complicated matters. The high doses of antipsychotic medications affected them deeply. And while these medications can often be seen as necessary to manage certain severe psychiatric conditions, they also have like debilitating side effects. So Jennifer develops that tardive dyskinesia characterized by uncontrollable movements which is indicative of like long-term antipsychotic use. It's like with people with Parkinson's, you can see that or like the, Mm -hmm. they don't, they move like in very erratic ways that they can't control. But despite all this bleakness and mistreatment, the twins did have pretty good resilience, which shines through. They continued to document their experiences, thoughts and emotions in their diaries, which offered an invaluable insight into their minds during this challenging period. And furthermore, their participation in the hospital choir suggested an attempt to find moments of normalcy and joy, even within the confines of Broadmoor. And the twins' story inevitably attracted media attention, and their case became widely known, primarily due to the diligent reporting by Marjorie Wallace of the Sunday Times. Her interest in their lives didn't stop with articles, because she later authored a book called The Silent Twins, which dove deeper into the mysteries and complexities of June and Jennifer's lives. And through Wallace's work, the world got a closer look at the lives of the Gibbons twins, further cementing their place in cultural history. And the story of the twins is both compelling and tragic, and a tale of deep sibling connection complicated by their unique psychological challenges. But it gets a little stranger from there, because there was a mysterious pact between the twins, which was recounted by journalist Marjorie Wallace, that one would actually lead a normal wife life should the other pass away which was a reflection of their bond and this this pact added another deep layer of complexity to their relationship especially given jennifer's sudden and unexpected death shortly after their transfer to a less restrictive institution and jennifer's death is surrounded by enigma the cause of her death acute mitocarditis is an inflammation of the heart which can sometimes have viral origins But the absence of drugs or poison in her system ruled out the possibility of an overdose or intentional poisoning. What remains haunting is the timing of her demise, right at the cusp of the new chapter for the twins. June's testimony of Jennifer's behavior leading up to the transfer, including her pronouncement of her impending death, adds to the tragedy's mystique. And June's reaction to the death underscores their unique bond. Her statement to Wallace, describing the sensation of liberation is simultaneously disturbing and sad. She interprets Jennifer's death as a sacrificial act, which freed her from their mutual bond and the profound entanglement they shared. Ooh, that's ooky spooky. 
Jennifer's burial in Wales marks a somber chapter in this narrative, but her death also marked a turning point for June. The subsequent years witnessed a transformation in her, with interviews with prominent publications like Harper's Bazaar and The Guardian, which allowed her to voice her experiences and perspectives. And by 2008, she managed to carve out a quiet and independent life for herself, a life where she sought to move beyond the haunting past. And the twin story didn't just affect them, but left an indelible mark on the family. Greta, their sister, expressed resentment and frustration with Broadview Hospital, holding them accountable for the twins' lengthy confinement and Jennifer's sudden death. Her urge to seek legal action, though dissuaded by the twins' parents, underscored the family's prolonged pain and the ripple effect the twins' experience had on their loved ones. And now this isn't just twins who go through this strange mental connection. It can literally happen to anyone, Noel. It could be happening to you and me right fucking now. I think it happens quite often, unfortunately, yeah. between you and I. For Delusion. sure. <laughs> so let's talk about two friends. Let's not talk about twins. Let's talk about murder. Oh, my favorite. Just kidding. Only kind of. <laughs> so Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume's story culminated in a tragic and horrifying act. Their relationship, filled with fantasies and intricate private worlds, was marked by an intensity that many found a little unnerving. On the 22nd of June, 1954, in Victoria Park near Christchurch, New Zealand, the two teenage girls executed a plan. Using a brick and a stocking, they bludgeoned Honora Parker, Pauline's mom, to death. And the crime scene was super brutal, and the nature of the crime shocked the entire Christchurch community. And the girls had originally initially attempted to make the murder appear accidental with a fucking brick and a sock. Yeah. Oh, she's a mush mashed potato pie. She must have slipped. (laughs) But their story obviously quickly unraveled and both girls were arrested and charged with murder. Following the discovery of Honora's body and the evident inconsistencies in Parker and Hulme's account of the events, the police quickly began a detailed investigation. Their trial began on August 26, 1954, and attracted widespread attention, both nationally and internationally. Both girls were interviewed separately, and discrepancies in their stories emerged almost immediately. As investigators delved deeper, they found the diary of Pauline Parker, which detailed the girls' plans to kill the mom. The diary entries included vivid descriptions of their shared fantasies, as well as the mounting resentments towards the mom, who they perceived as the primary obstacle to their plans to stay together. The written evidence from the diary, coupled with the physical evidence from the crime scene, made the case against the two girls pretty overwhelming. It was clear that the murder was premeditated, and it was clear that both girls were actively involved in carrying out the act. The brutality of the crime, the age of the perpetrators, and the intense nature of their relationship were sensational elements that captured public attention. Media coverage of the crime and subsequent trial were widespread, and many reporters and members of the public struggled to understand how two seemingly ordinary girls could commit such heinous and criminal acts. And the trial of Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume was swift. The details of their shared fantasy world, their detailed plans to commit murder, and the chilling nature of the act were laid out for the court. The defense attempted to argue that the girls were mentally ill and were driven insane by their shared delusions to commit the act, but the jury was unconvinced. Both girls were found guilty, but due to their age, they were spared from the death penalty, which would have been a possible sentence for adults convicted of a similar crime in New Zealand at the time. But instead, instead they were sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's Pleasure, a term used to denote an indefinite period of detention. 
public real opinion. Real cute. That's I fucking know, real that's cute. That's adorable. The queen wants me here, baby. Cat, 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 cat. And public opinion on the case was divided. While some saw the girls as monsters and others viewed them as trouble youths led astray by their unchecked imaginations. The case has been analyzed by criminologists, psychologists, and social commenters, many of whom point to the unique and obsessive nature of the girls' relationship, as well as the societal attitudes towards homosexuality and female adolescence in the 1950s as contributing factors to the tragic evidence of that day. The Parker Hume murder case has been the subject of significant attention over the years, both in New Zealand and internationally. It has been examined by countless articles, documentaries, and academic studies, and was even the basis for the 1994 film Heavenly Creatures, directed by Peter Jackson. Which portrayed- I was gonna fucking say, bitch. Yep. That sounds a little familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Our uh, our brother. And Mordor, our brother in uh, fucking Middle Earth, Peter Jackson, portrayed the intense relationship between the two girls and the events leading up to the murder. Pauline Parker ultimately changed her name to Hillary Nathan and kept her. I like that she was like girl name, girl name, boy name, boy name, even split. Mm -hmm. She kept her life relatively low profile after her release from prison and her decision to live a quiet life in a small village away from the public eye. Um, and her conversion to Roman Catholicism indicated a desire for atonement and a search for redemption. Uh-huh. Yep. That's why they do it. Yeah. That's yep. totally why they do it. Um, she did actually express some true remorse and the life she led actually showed that she sought to distance herself from the traumatic events of her teenage years. She would not cross the line, so to speak, ever again. Juliet Hume's transformation into Anne Perry and her successful career as a novelist is an actual surprising twist in her life narrative. Is it Paris? though? Because it sounds like she lives a pretty interesting <laughs> life that would be easy to write about. I mean, she just wrote about what she did and made millions off of it. Exactly. And Perry's novels, while falling within the genre of historical detective fiction, often delve into the themes of moral ambiguity, justice, and redemption. She pulled a fucking OJ and made uh-huh. the book, like, what if I did it? But, like, if was super small. Oh, girl. Small. She tries to say that they're not autobiographical, but if the shoe fucking fits, it's not hard to imagine that her own experiences and reflections on guilt, atonement, and second chances definitely influenced her writing yeah in the book she says that they put the brick in a tube sock rather than a pair of stockings 100 percent. so Anne perry's identity as juliet hume actually remained a secret for many years and it only became wildly known after the release of heavenly creatures yeah get her asses <laughs> i know thanks peter old pete while some readers and fans felt betrayed by this revelation, others argued that Perry had already served her time and should be judged on the merits of her writing rather than her past. And in various interviews, Perry definitely acknowledged what she did. She definitely expressed remorse and sought understanding up until her death on April 10th of this year at the wow. age of 84. Wow, RIP queen. Now let's get into the last case of this episode where we look at an entire family gone south. And well, you and I actually have done an episode on um, something similar to this when we talked about the entire family who committed suicide in India. Mm-hmm. Shared delusions, baby. But we are not talking about them. We are talking about the Trump family, not Trump family. We're talking the O's, not the U's. Thank you. They are the pretty much the epitome of a conventional, hardworking familial unit. And they had carved out a thriving 
uh, Red Courant Farm and Earth Moving Venture in Sylvan, which is merely a stone's throw from Melbourne's heart in bubbling and bustling Australia. Hi, Mia. Hi, Mia. <laughs> but Good eye, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Down under. <laughs> Shrimp on the barbie. I was going to say, plus. <laughs> can't do a fucking They charge for fucking ketchup there. It's absurd. Oh, my ketchup God. Packets. Ketchup packets. That's how you know it's an island full imagine? of prisoners. Fucking. On Monday, August 29th, Mark Trump, 51, alongside his wife, Jacoba, 53, or Jacoba, doesn't matter. And their adult trio, Rihanna, Mitchell, and Ella, aged 29, 25, and 22, respectively and impulsively packed into their car and set a course, course northward. And this was not a casual departure. They seemed to be escaping. Authorities subsequently alerted and investigated their residence. They discovered untouched passports, credit cards, and mobile devices. Their journey from the family was one that was adev- evidently wanted to be kept off the digital radar was cash-driven and devoid of electronic traces. Whispers later surfaced about Mark and Jacoba grippling and mounting with mounting stress and paranoia. Reports hinted that one of them harbored a chilling conviction that someone was plotting their demise to seize their wealth. In Mitchell's, one of the sons, his phone was the only one that made the trip, and he was actually one of the outliers. He seemingly was untouched by the engulfing wave of family paranoia, and he later voiced that he had only tagged along out of concern for their well-being. He just tagged along because he was like, I had to go into Mecca's. Well, yeah. And he's, like, <laughs> he's like, everyone's fucking leaving. The freaking kangaroos are descending. I had to punch one to protect the family dog. I'm sick of it. I got to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the journey unfolded, he definitely found that his parents' growing delusions were definitely challenging to his perceived narrative. So not too far from their home at the distance of roughly 30 kilometers. 30 the way what? Of- I don't know. Why did I do that? What the fuck is your problem today? What the I fuck is know. your problem today? I just feel like, did you notice how I was writing the dates too? I was writing you the dates. You wrote them British. God, what? Why? What? Are you going to tell me know. you love the yeah. Queen of England now? What are you going to oh do? Oh my God. Let me stand up really quick. Cause I'm like, really the Pledge of Allegiance or something. Bad. God, but I don't pledge allegiance to the flag. You've got to. That's the only way we can get back. All right, I pledge allegiance. I have to do it off. I have to do it off. I pledge allegiance. Put your hand over your heart. United States of America. Thank you. Thank you. Will you salute? Salute the troops. There's a flag in here somewhere. You're a grand old flag. You're a a high-flying flag. (laughs) And for wait, 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 wait. Wait, I have da, da, Captain da, America da, comics right here. Da, Let me pull one. I don't up. know the rest of it. <laughs> Are we back? Um, oh, that was scary. Wait, wait, wait. wait. That was so fucking scary. I pledge allegiance to Captain America. There he is. There you That's go. the only flag I follow, baby. There you go. God, we're gonna have to like watch NASCAR after this or something. It's so fucking embarrassing. Oh, oh my god. Whew. Let me burp real quick to get it out of me. Yeah, you got to exercise that demon. Fucking 30 kilometers. Jesus Christ. God. Where are so, we? Roughly 18.6411 miles. Thank you so fucking much. Oh my God, look at that now. I understand. Yeah, <laughs> under the way of paranoia, they insisted Mitchell rid himself of his phone, fearing it was a beacon for their pursuers. And their voyage in Ella's shimmering SUV spanned the day of night culminate bath first news a considerable 497 miles away thank you so much it was here 
is Don broke on Tuesday after his parents' relentless bullying to throw away his cell phone. Mitchell made the choice to part ways. We got yeah. one down, four to go. Later that Tuesday, the Wait, four- Wait, part ways is then like just leave or like like leave permanently? They dipped. Oh, no, he didn't kill himself. They just left uh, him in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Oh, and it was fine. Okay. So later that Tuesday, the four remaining members of the Trump clan set their sights eastward from Bathurst, landing in the tourist magnet Janolan Caves. This locale was where Rihanna and Ella opted to distance themselves, too, from their parents, a choice they executed by stealing a car. The duo made their do it. I would steal a car to get away from my family sometimes, as much as I love them. I would steal yeah. a car to get away from myself if I could. If I knew how to drive when I was at my most angsty, girl, car gone. The car's just, fucking gone. You would see a cartoon vision of smoke in the shape of the car. But I, was I am going to say, the cartoon smoke would have poofed. <laughs> yeah. So the duo made their way to Goldburn and alarmed authorities about their mysteriously missing parents. This is when the unfolding tale caught media attention, leaving Australians scratching their heads. I also like that they told they went to the cops in the stolen car. They're like, hey, hey, guys, (laughs) real quick. We had to do it. Our parents are being fucking crazy. By the way, don't mind that stolen car. Don't mind that. Pay attention to me. Eyes over here. Focus, focus. Yep. Don't look at the car. Are you talking to me? Look at <laughs> you. Yeah. Are you an Australian cop? <laughs> well, I was bending over to put the comic book away after I pledged allegiance to Captain America. And then I come back and you're like, God, look at me. Yeah. You just cosplayed an Australian cop. That's exactly what I was doing. So I. Oh, was that you saying? Okay. That was, that was so British. You can't even escape it. Oi, oi, oi. That's Australian. That's like British too. No, it's Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. The I way you just, said it was like, oh, that's German. It's if I was going to do it in French, it would be we. Oh. <laughs> I can't. This you're is a really so, long episode. You're so fucking British coded right now. It's insulting. I don't know what to do. I don't know either. We, we still have like three away. pages left. Let's get oh, through Jesus it. Jesus Christ. Hurry. This finish. is a long one. I think it ended up being 13 pages of notes. God. So the unfolding tale at this time caught the media attention and left Australians scratching their heads, wondering how a family could become so bizarrely disjointed and each go so astray on what seemed like a conventional domestic road trip. And they weren't traversing the vastness of the outback. They were hanging out within proximity to relatively populated areas. Um, and once in Goldburn, the sisters actually took another turn because um, after they like told the cops what was going on, at a gas station, they decided to choose separate paths, and Ella wanted to go home to attend her horses. Uh, okay, she was yeah. the first one. Yeah, she just snapped out of it. Um, she was the first one to resurface at home. Um, she came home on Tuesday evening to find that the cops were already there. And by the next morning, Mitchell, too, made his way home, journeying through a string of train rides. So now we're down to three. Mm-hmm. With Mitchell and Ella seemingly stable, Rihanna exhibited a stark contrast, because In Goldburn, she instead snuck into the settled rear of a utility truck. The mail driver, unaware of his unexpected passenger, discovered Rihanna only after he had traveled for nearly an hour. Upon pulling over, he described her as being in a daze, unable to recall her name or recognize her surroundings. 
She was subsequently admitted to Goldburn Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. And due to her mental state, the police opted to not charge her in her connection with the vehicle theft. On the other hand, Ella did get charged for the car theft incident. That's Damn. Damn. Down to two. I know. <laughs> Gotta get one. Um, the media's intrigue now had intensified, prompting a cross-state search as Mark and Jacoba made their way back towards Melbourne from the Janolan Caves. Oh, she's looking it up. She puts- <laughs> <laughs> I'm Googling kilometers and miles. <laughs> However, about 372 miles away in South Wangarata, Victoria, the couple went their separate ways. Jacoba, by unknown means, headed north. North. Oh, I'm just trying to buy time. Yeah, well, she's she was, translating again. She was later discovered 217 miles away and yes. Yes. And distressed. She was initially taken to a local hospital and was then transferred to Goldburn to join her daughter, Rihanna, for ongoing psychiatric care. So they went crazy together and now they're getting get sane together. Um, meanwhile, though, Mark remained in Wangarata after that's a really fun Irish or Irish Australian name. Wangarata. Wangarata. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> I I'm going to do it. Man, no, there's no talent here. Uh, after engaging in the alarming act of tailgating a young couple like a maniac, he was later seen dashing away from from Ella's SUV. Thank and there you. were also, I can't say that. That's a weird, <laughs> whatever. There was also reports of several break-ins in the area, including one at a motel, although any connection to Mark remains unconfirmed. Puget? In- yeah. <laughs> is that what that is? Puget? P-E-U-G-E-O-T. Puget. I have no idea. That's an Australian car. Who would know? You it's know, not diesel. That's for damn sure. It ain't fucking diesel, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't blowing smoke. So back in Sylvan, an emotional Mitchell and Ella faced the press, expressing their superior confusion over their parents' extremely erratic actions. I've never encountered behavior like this before, Mitchell conveyed. I'm desperate for my father to return safely. He's not a threat to anyone. He's my father, my friend, and I care deeply for him. We're down to one. On a Saturday, six days into the bewildering affair, Mark Tromp was discovered near Wangarata Airport. After a police interrogation and mental health evaluation, Mark, not without displaying a defiant gesture to the press, flipped him off, was released into the custody of his brother, who's a police officer. Ooh. Yeah. In time, Mark extended a repentant statement, apologizing for the distress his family's actions caused, acknowledging the community's efforts to aid them all. But still, the mystery lingered as the public tried to decipher the baffling incident, especially when the police ruled out any actual threat to the Tromps. A seasoned officer from Sylvan, Sergeant Mark Knight, described the ordeal as the most perplexing he's ever encountered in three decades. He emphasized the Tromps had no prior history of mental illness, and there was zero evidence pointing to any drug use. They were financially stable and had no ties to any religious sex. This was an extreme breakdown, he surmised, and Mitchell and Era Tromp struggled to provide any additional clarity. It's an enigma. Their panic and decision to run seemed rooted in escalating everyday pressures, Mitchell later speculated. While there's other speculation that chemicals from their farming may have impacted their mental state, another theory theory presented by the media is the family might have experienced shared delusions. Um, I don't know why I put that in there. But the catalyst of the Trump's public unraveling might remain a perplexing and perpetual mystery. 
So while Foley Adu is a chilling psychological phenomenon, literally translating to madness of two, this rare condition of delusional beliefs are transmitted from one to another, typically within close-knit relationships. Noel's laughing at me on mute. The two become ensnared in a shared web of paranoia and illusion, reinforcing each other's distorted perceptions. I'm trying to read this like a fucking professional, and she's just losing it on camera. While in common, I stopped to read your fucking wackadoo paragraph, and then you clearly stopped to read your wackadoo paragraph. I think I copied. Was- I think when I was reordering the episode, I did a copy paste instead of a cut paste, and it was just the opening paragraph over again. And I was like, it's "Am like- I going crazy?" While I was reading it, I was like, why is she saying this? And then I realized that it was silent and that there was probably like a minute of dead air because we were both looking at it like, what the fuck? I gotta step in while like my, I gotta like. I watched you highlight and delete it. Oh my God. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) we're doing it live. In the depths of our closest connections though, who's to say we're immune from such a shared descent into madness, Noel? You're not, or, girl. <laughs> it might ensnare you when you least expect. <laughs> like you highlighting that paragraph going, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> like, <laughs> a, minute, a minute and a half of dead air and then just Rob, you, I don't know why I did that. And no, I try to no I'll try to like read through. Saying. I try to like read through and quickly edit and move stuff around in a way it makes sense, but I'm telling you that was a command. Command C, oh. uh, Command X, or maybe that was caught me live. Shared delusion. Yeah, maybe the other Chelsea rewrote that. Oh my fucking god! Anyway, holy adu. I love that. I also think that this is the shared delusion is what they try to say, like that the witch trials were all about. There's a oh, lot hysteria for sure. Yeah. The dancing plague. Yeah, I was going to say the dancing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you gotta love it. The and shared delusion that if you and I continue to put in hard work, this could one day be our career. Pay off. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking idiots. Dumb. Straight delusion, girl. That is the that's the delusion that's gonna put me outside on the streets. Um but if you would like to help us make this a fucking not delusion, if you would like to wake us from psychosis in the link in all of our bios we are at go to hell podcast i'm at noel fane that is at sith lord you can find a link to a link tree which has a link so shock shocking shocking revelation it has a link to our patreon a dollar gets you in um we had a super fun episode on patreon today it wasn't just us like um having a little banter it was us talking about um curses from the bible Biblical curses. Yeah, we actually had a topic this time, which is crazy, girl. And as you may have remembered from the beginning of this episode, I learned something that's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. So go check it out. A dollar gets you in. New episodes every week. We also have a link to Kelly Holloran or at Wildwood Owl on Etsy. She makes cool shit for us and she makes cool shit in general. We have a link to our merch page where 100% of the proceeds are donated. Chelsea has been banging out some crazy fucking merch, so go check that out. And you can also find a link to our Discord server, our Facebook group for the boomers, which is dying. They- oh, thank fucking God. I hate fucking Facebook. <laughs> I hate it. I fucking hate it. I can't stand it, you guys. I can't stand Facebook. 
But anyway, it's there if you need it. And we also have um, a link to places you can listen to us, which I don't know why you'd need it because you're doing that right now. But the answer to that question is anywhere podcasts are heard. Happy Halloween. Ooh, it is Halloween. Happy Halloween. Um, You know, speaking of Halloween, I would like to go ahead and say, I would actually like to switch this and say an unhail to myself. I'm going to unhail to myself the anti-hail. I'm going to anti-hail because I did not go to a pumpkin patch. I did not buy a pumpkin and I did not carve a pumpkin and so what the fuck what there's the still fuck time fuck there's still time and there's actually not because i am hand dyeing my fucking costumes and it's driving me crazy and this is my second day with a ratatouille style pot on my stove boiling fabrics and it's like what am i gonna do here there's no time to carve a jack-o'-lantern Unless the jack-o'-lantern is my fucking brain and I'm carving into it because I'm losing my mind. You could be, that could be true. So. I too have not done any of those. Snuck in a burp there. My bad. Um, I too have not done any of that. And you want to know why? Laziness. Maybe depression. Maybe. Maybe. Shared delusion. Oliver did buy a couple of small pumpkins though that are like super cute, but I have carved nothing. And I've gone, I've done not a single Halloween activity. I am making my niece's costume and that's about it. And I have not started and she needs it because Halloween is practically tomorrow. And I should probably get started on that. Fuck. I am unwell, dude. If you could see my kitchen right now and the way that Rit dye has been splattered on the walls, like a fucking crime scene, dude, it is. Feeling very much not this is Halloween. It's and really rough out there. Yeah. You know? Didn't go to a, whoa. Didn't even go to a haunted house. Me either. I didn't even go to the haunted corn maze. Yeah, and we said that we were gonna do that. Um you know, uh we were I'll give vagities here before we go. You and I were talking about doing a video similar but different upgraded, if you will, to what we did last year. And I think we should still do that, but I think it's going to be a Christmas gift. (laughs) Okay. All right. Yeah. We're good. Cause we're going to need editing. We're going to need, we're going to need editing and we're going to need costumes and we're going to need like two people filming and we're going to need to get mic'd up. So I think we're going to have to make it a Christmas gift. And I also think we should be doing research to get ready for it. Um, Yeah. Who's so. going to be who? Are you going to be main and am I going to be side or am I going to be side and you're going to be main? I think, um, flip you a know, coin. I think it's flip a coin. I also okay. think that the biggest it, it's, it's a size thing, right? Like that's why mm-hmm. them next to each other is so funny is a size thing. So I so think you'll it, have to be secondary then. Yeah, I think it's going to have to be, like, right? Because, right. like, that's what's so funny is that he yeah. is, you know, like, oh, but he's, like, fucking knee-high to a grasshopper. Yeah. So. Gotcha. All right. So, I'm ready. Yeah, you're going to have to find out. It's going to be our Christmas special. It's going to be I that. I quit shaving my beard starting today. Well, I'm not going to be able to do that because I'll be unrecognizable in 48 <laughs> hours. So. Touche. Oh, let's get the fuck out of here. 
All right. Bye. Bye.